Hi, you are listening to Love Fool, a podcast about love, romance, and media. My name is Caroline, and I'm the creator. And today, I am talking to my friend Quentin. You are going to have to like do an intro because I don't. Quentin only agreed to come on with a guarantee of anonymity, so I'm going to let him like go in as much detail or as little detail as he wants about what he does. Right. Well, so there's not terribly many Quintins running around, and I think I'll probably place myself in one way, shape, or form. But yes, my name is Quentin. Uh, I used to work in fashion. Uh, I co-founded a luxury Italian menswear brand uh, based out of New York, but produced in Italy. We sold through department stores and independent luxury stores for about five years. Uh, I then took a a semi-graceful exit and headed back to business school. And uh, after two years of business school in Charlottesville, Virginia, I am now set to start working at a bank, uh, working in asset management in financial services. Yes, he's joined the Death Star, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) No, Q would never. We wanted to start with what piece of media was most um, influential to Quentin's concept of romance, and he said The Great Gatsby. And to clarify, we're, we're talking about the novel, not the Baz Luhrmann disaster. Although, did you like it? Did you like the movie? Um, I think that I could appreciate it for what it was. Like, generally speaking, like Baz Luhrmann has a very sort of particular sort of vision and take, which he brings to all of his, all of his productions. And so therefore, like, if you view it not so much as a faithful recreation or, or simulation of the novel, but more as just kind of Baz Luhrmann's own creative piece and and genesis that just happened to have a a shared name and storyline with the with the novel i think that it stands a little bit better on its own but it's like remaking like a comic book there's there's always going to be somebody who has a bone to pick with the fidelity or lack of fidelity to their particular conception of of the piece of original art so um i like it for what it was you know give leo his due uh the costuming was good shout out to brooks brothers uh Oh, did they, were they behind that? Yeah, they actually launched a collection or they they brought to market a collection that had several pieces from the film and you could buy your own sort of, you know, boaters cap and and whatnot. I don't think it was particularly good for them. I mean, it obviously wasn't like Brooks Brothers, part of the old bankruptcy uh, crew Hmm. days in the COVID times. Yeah, I, so I had been at a show with Leo in February of the year that that came out, I think that came out in August and I had seen him during fashion week. Um, while, uh, Toby was still married to Jennifer Meyer. I was at her jewelry thing and he was there and I have to just give props to Baz Luhrmann's team that like CGI'd away his neck fat because he looked amazing in the movie and he did not look so great in person. So shout out to them. But yeah, I agree with you that it's like, it should be viewed as like a work of its own it's like an homage to the great Gatsby. It's not really the great Gatsby. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that I'd like to think that the benefit of a, a retelling of a story like Gatsby brings it sort of into the common parlance and purview of a new generation of people. Obviously it's been on the sort of high school reading list, myself included, you know, part of the sort of great American canon, if you will. But I think that for better or worse, like, uh, 
productions like that bring it back into the into the mainstream and into the sort of public consciousness. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I feel like when you said The Great Gatsby, many people would groan because like it gets this sort of reputation for being like on the high school reading list, right? But I think it was cool that you brought it up because the propaganda story associated with it gets it kind of you you lose the romance aspect of it there is a really beautiful romance within it if you like stop looking at as such an allegorical piece and look at it as a romance it is very beautiful and i will also say that i've i've fought this battle numerous times and more recently uh, the great gatsby's appeared on on such you know stellar internet lists as are you a fuck boy and might you be a soft boy (laughs) wait really so oh for sure it's i don't think it's quite as uh I don't know, as much of a moniker as perhaps Hemingway is for that classification. But I, I definitely think that it has, it has come to, in much the way that it always has, everybody read it, everybody had to sort of, you know, was forced through it. And so therefore it's, it's, it's pretty unoriginal, right? And, and I will say, I even like wrote one of my like college admissions essays on it. And my like school counselor was like, don't do this. Everybody... <laughs> Everybody, everybody writes on Gatsby, everybody says green light, and it's like, you're one of 6,000 people that go in the, oh, this kid wrote about Gatsby essay pile. So I said, say, I still went for it. I still, you know, you know, put the pen Did you paper. get in to the places that you submitted the Gatsby essay? I did. I mean, I, got, I mean, where I ultimately ended up going to school, as well as a couple other places I didn't go to. So I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not, I've since reread that essay and God love the admissions people because it, it was not unoriginal, but you know, there's only so much that can be said that has not been blanketed by the numerous like critics and whatnot. But that all said, I think you make a very good point, which is that just because it has been read often, quoted often, does not necessarily diminish the impact that it can have on like an individual person or an individual's experience of that piece of art. And I think that's likely where I find a bit more sort of like personal relevance, uh, to the story and to Gatsby as a, as a work of fiction. Yeah. If, if anything, I feel like people overlook the kind of um, like surface layer reading of it because everybody wants to like dive right into like, what does it mean about capitalism and manifest destiny and all these things. And kind of similar to like Lolita with what kind of Nabokov said, because everybody makes comments about Lolita being about like, the relationship between America and Europe. And he's like, it's just a love story, guys. And I think it's kind of cool to look at Gatsby from just sort of that surface layer interpretation because people kind of immediately want to dig deeper and they maybe are overlooking some very beautiful things about it as just a romance story. Well, yeah. And what I'd say is that like you clearly didn't read Gatsby when you were like in your first first throes of you know romantic high school love like I did. And that's, I think one of the things that made Gatsby so impactful for me, but I think has continued to make Gatsby impactful for me is that I'm a firm believer in that art is, is sort of the intersection of a person's creative expression, as well as sort of a person, a viewer's or consumer's experience of that piece of art. We could look at the same Calder mobile and you could be like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm transported back to the, you know, the springtime of my youth. And I could be like, this hideous black thing is marring one otherwise perfectly green hillside, right? So I, I would, I'm not going to like, you know, bear the cross of the larger kind of capital A art conversation. But like, for <laughs> me, it was a, a romance story 
in a time of like young and new romance. And I think that that is why it had such a like formative and, and then eventually transformative uh, view of, of my personal view and experience of romance. So you were having kind of a, a parallel like love story going on, like in your, in your personal life as you read The Great Gatsby for the first time in, in high schools when I would imagine? Yes, no, exactly. I had, um, you know, recently come back from a war and uh, was... <laughs> And was in love with this sort of heiress, uh, and it was—it was just—it was, just, was kind of like reading my sight. <laughs> basically, I you know I had just built my large mansion to try and move her back. So no, um, but but like that's what's so interesting is I remember reading Gatsby for the first time, and I've read it several times since, and I was just—it was a love story, and I'm like, wow, this power of like transformative love. He sort of has this platonic conception of self you know, romp like the mind of a god and then he chooses to kiss her. And like in that moment, and this is sort of the passage that I recently looked up, I don't have this necessarily on the, the cuff of my pajama sleeve here, but like, it's so interesting that you were like, oh, everybody reads it. Like, it's just like a commentary on the Nobu Rish in the the roaring twenties and the- Yeah, all like the like economic- Ennui, of the, ennui yeah. of the lost generation before the stock market crash. It's like, we talked about that in our English class, but like that- for me was not the parts that I remember and the parts that I underlined and highlighted. So I wonder if it does appeal to like the finance minded a little bit because of (laughs) I'm going into this territory. Um, So yeah, like it's kind of like the banker bro favorite compliment to give girls in New York, at least like, Oh, you're my Daisy Buchanan. You've had to have heard this before. Sure, you're gonna paint me into this corner. Um, <laughs> for what it's worth, I still don't think of myself as a as a banker slash finance bro slash person. So I, I will. Well, you don't I'll, look like like one, that's for sure. So <laughs> thank you, thank you. This is not necessarily just like a sidestep or a hedge. Like I, I think there is an aspect of the financially minded and particularly the incredibly monetarily driven individual who's like he self-made man he got out there he hustled he he did whatever it took he you know knocked on the doors and then beat you know beat in the doors he couldn't get into and kind of made his own way and sort of built his own sort of castle and sort of tribute to himself um and that's that's aspirational that's inspiring that's like you know the wolf of wall street yeah it is kind of like the wolf of wall street in that way like he created this like concept of a man to to woo her yeah and so i think that's without getting too much into like a close reading type thing the story is narrated from the perspective of nick carraway right a great english professor who i had later in life talked about how the great gatsby the title of the novel is is not a statement it's a question it's like do you agree that gatsby is great and at the end, throughout the, the novel, Nick is trying to both convince himself and us that Gatsby is, in fact, a, is, is great, is someone who is worthy of admiration, who, who, who did this thing and who, who did not die a failure. And it's so interesting because at the end of the day, like, are you, as the reader, ultimately convinced that that's the case? Because I read Gatsby again shortly after a breakup, a different relationship at a breakup. And I was like, this guy's a fucking fool. All the signs were there. Like she clearly had no interest. Like she was just in a bad marriage in a bad situation. And he, he's a sucker. And how could he not see? And again, I, 
I think that's why it's such a compelling piece of art for me is because my experience of the novel has changed greatly. And so you can choose to believe like back to sort of the banker bro line. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a financial success. He through this chain of sketchy pharmacies with, you know, Wolfsheim and through fixing the world series, whatever, you know, he was able to, to build his house, to build his, but ultimately the house ended up empty. His, his debitors came and collected everything that he seemingly had like not bought or paid for. That's not a great banker finance bro story. That's a cautionary tale of yeah. building, building a house on sand to, you know, beat the metaphor to death. But again, I think that's, that's what makes it a, a capital G great novel and a great piece of art is that like, you know, re- read it how you like. And then ultimately, do you agree with the like, yeah, like, you know, do you go with your kind of more like jejune interpretation of it or like as you kind of age and can like see nuance a little bit more, like, are you able to look at it differently? And again, there's, it's, it has this kind of uh, Don Quixote-esque element to it as well, which like, you know, maybe he saw it, maybe, maybe Gatsby never saw it, but Caraway saw this fool jousting a windmill, right, who could not be dissuaded from, and is there something kind of romantic and chivalric about that? Is that something to be like celebrated and venerated? Like maybe it is like, maybe that is in fact admirable in some capacity. I think there is something romantic about the singular vision, like no matter how quixotic it might be. um, Do you feel like the romance that, or the like romantic like set up between him and Daisy was um, pure or was it sort of a projection of his own fantasy? Oh, I mean, I think, and I think there's textual evidence to support that like in very much the way that James Gats became Jay Gatsby on Dan Cody's yacht, Daisy was, was merely sort of the next incarnation of who he saw himself as being. And I think in many ways he, on the one hand, to be quite admirable, and on the other hand, to be quite pitiful, which is that, like, on the, I really hope someday to have something that pulls such a strong center of gravity that I can, like, you know, reshape sort of myself, my motivation, like, around something that I believe in so totally and purely and can commit myself to something so fully. Like, that is at once, like, a passion, a calling, a faith, uh, that's and that was my kind of you know the big punchline of my college essay, which is that like I'm searching for my passion, right? Like I'm searching for like that. That oh, thing. that was your thesis. Yes, yes, and again, it's and it was like, and I could find that at University X. Like. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just copy and paste the different universities in and out. Yes, exactly, exactly. Do I think that Daisy was merely just a foil? No. Do I think that she was? And again, I don't necessarily should not regularly compare a, a woman to Daisy. There's tons of fraud issues of both the kind of like possessive and masculine pitfalls in doing that. So like <laughs> recognizing that and not exploring those, like she she very much is a a tool or a like it's she's very much like a placeholder for a, for a lot of things. And she's sort of an grow- idea, less less a woman than an idea. Exactly. That's that's well said. An idea or an ideal. Yes, exactly. Which has kind of like become this thing. Um, And I'm a little bit critical of this um, because I think people kind of say something isn't romantic if it utilizes a manic pixie dream girl. Like, you know, this fantastical woman who doesn't really have 
her own voice or agency or anything beyond like the salvation of the male character. Um, but I think, I don't know. A lot, a lot of people look at like 500 days of summer and um, what's the other one garden state and shit like that. But I, I don't know. I think if it's romantic, it's romantic. I try not to judge it too much, but mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah, he wasn't really looking at Daisy as who she was, which was like the unhappy wife of a shitty, angry man. So. Oh, for sure. Well, and again, I think interestingly, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt came out and said that like Tom Hansen sucks. Like he hated, this is 500 days of summer, but like Tom Hansen, he thinks that Tom Hansen is like a schmuck and an idiot. So like you can leave that bit of media aside. But like, I think that like, I, I agree with you. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think that like, as is very often the case with stereotypes, archetypes, and like heuristics, they're shortcuts, right? They are, they are quick and easy ways of trying to mentally, emotionally sort of place and categorize most dangerously people to suit our own kind of like understanding the worldview. And when you're doing that, excuse me, whether it's with a stereotype or whether it's with a, you of course assume all sorts of things that are not necessarily true. You do not give the agency or the individualism to that which you are assigning the stereotype or archetype or heuristic to. And, and so I very much agree with you. At worst, dangerous, at, at perhaps most benign, a like a kind of like... Shallow, lazy, yeah. Lazy, shallow thing to do. But as, as is so often the case, like if, if a guy were to come up to you and be like, oh, you, you strike me as a Daisy Faye type character, you could either be like, well, I'm going to crucify you on the fact that like you know, she's the, the subject of a, or you could like, well, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Let me, let me help, help me better. Hack that man. <laughs> yes. Like, let me help, help clarify your thinking for me with me. And again, it should, the burden should never be on you to have to excuse the, you know, the horrible, horrible and sometimes childish things men say. <laughs> sure. That's not what I'm saying. And again, we're being very heteronormative with our discussion here, but like, um, <laughs> I think, I think intention matters a great deal. And uh, the degree to which we can seek more to understand each other's intentions, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. And, okay. So I'll come to the, to the heteronormative male defense here that Quentin's actually like the only person who's ever asked my answers to the questions that I send out um, ahead of time. And I talked a little bit about how I feel that love... Um, makes you feel at the same time you feel completely yourself, you also feel like you want to be the best version of yourself, that there's something that sort of inspires you to be the best you can be to kind of honor that person or honor the vision that you feel like they have of you. And I think that that kind of goes into this whole like idealization projection thing. Like I think people do see you with like rose colored glasses when they are in love with you. And I think that part of being in love is like wanting, wanting to like live up to that in a good way. And I think that that can be nice. I think that can be a good thing. I don't, I don't think it necessarily has to be like, um, like you're, uh, just sexist and, um, belittling, belittling women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I think that's, I, I agree with what you're saying. So you can brag about being the only person that asked me my answers. to the Yeah. Group. So, I mean, again, I, I don't, uh, I don't see that so much as, again, I was really happy to like read your answers. And I think that ultimately in order to have a good conversation, it helps to better understand the person you're talking to and their viewpoints and their way of addressing the topics at hand. And I think that like 
by answering the questions first and then reading yours, it helped me uh, remain more myself and more subjective in my own right, as opposed to necessarily responding directly to your answers. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really interesting to read, um, a lot of your responses as well as I think that you made a good point about how, how the other person in a relationship is very much someone who helps you strive to be sort of a better version of yourself, who helps you see yourself. And, and in that is very similar to the sort of Gatsby idealization thing, which is they help you see yourself in a way and address yourself and approach who you are and who you want to be in a, in a more and better fashion. And so in that way, we hope that the, the, the loved ones in our life can be the creator of the great Caroline or the great Quentin, right? They will be the, the Nick Carraway to constantly be the cheerleader and champion of our, of our, ide- uh, our idealized self. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's, that I kind of figured a way to get to the point, but we would, I figured we would touch on that when we talked about Gatsby, because like, I think that a lot of people are critical of like the idea of idealization um, as they should be, I guess, if you're kind of looking at it from like a gen, like, you know, gender politics or whatever. But I think there's something really beautiful and not necessarily sinister about idealizing somebody. Um, Is there a most romantic moment scene passage for you or any just sort of anything you wanted to zoom in on? Um. Yeah, there was a, there's a particular quote, and I looked it up. All right, so this is actually quoted directly from Gatsby. I think it's chapter six. He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited, listening for a moment longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. At his lips touched, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete obviously sort of yonic imagery of her being a flower, the very kind of like using of her for his realization and incarnation, if you will, and sort of his perhaps misogynistic God-like complex. Whatever, it was hot. <laughs> is, is like, you kind of hope that your first kiss is like that, that your first kiss with someone is transformative, is, is, is not just like memorable, but is, yeah, transformative is the word. And I think that we are, we are lucky in our lives if we have more than a handful of these type moments where we are at once like sort of set upon and transported from ourselves and, and perhaps moved in a significant way towards who we are either becoming or who we could be. And again, this goes back to your idea of like in a great love, like that's something that happens, which is that the person is sort of constantly presenting you with and and helping you on towards that. But like, I think in this moment, there's this real crucible, like crucible of, of self and romance. And it's, it is, I think, quite beautiful. Yeah, that was a beautiful passage. I go back to the metaphor of like, she became very much his center of gravity. Anything and everything he did there was with the, the goal of getting closer to her, of of creating sort of a a self and a like, and again, was it a true a true version and vision of himself? You know, maybe maybe not, but like he he built it all for her and for like her well loved eyes. Another great phrase that I that I love there. And it's like by the time she actually came to his play, came sort of see him, like he had he had sort of transported and transposed himself. Uh, to be this not so now platonic conception of self, and depending on the time of the reading, that that is quite romantic and quite inspiring 
Um, I think at any time I'm speaking as a lady and I feel that, okay, so I'm assuming that Daisy Buchanan is not um, Zelda. I think it's probably somebody else that F. Scott had his eye on. And I feel it probably is based off a, a real girl. And if I was the real girl reading this, even like as the you know, description of Daisy within, you know, it's not always flattering. I would still feel, I would feel good about the fact that I was immortalized like that. And there, there were such like intense romantic moments that I featured in. So I'll, I'll take it. I'll be a muse any day of the week. Sign me up. Yeah. Well, and again, I think, you know, not even just like yeah, a muse, but also like a... Yeah, like a um, inspiration. Like I, I, exactly. Like I built this thing for you. I like one of the questions was about like sort of like old, old things of old things of romance or love in the past that have gone away. Like, yeah. One of my questions to, to Quentin was if, if there was something that we should bring back romance wise from a different era. Yeah. Well, and my answer, my answer to you, this was letter writing. Because I think that the, not just the sort of physical act of creating something is, is worthwhile in doing, but also like the very necessary work of sort of self-reflection, putting words to thoughts, feelings, and emotions and the vulnerability of like expressing those is something that romantic and like love letter writing is something that is very much gone by the wayside. But this then sort of dovetails with my point that I was making formerly, which is that like a lot of the kind of like hard work of, of romance, of courtship has sort of gone out the window. And not that everybody needs to be like building, you know, pyramids of affection for you to come and admire and, oh, look at this. Yeah, where's of, my cigarette? <laughs> what, are, what are the monuments that, that we build to... Like what? What is sort of the hard work that we put in to show our Instagram story? Yeah, you're you're totally right. Like right, and again, I'm and but this is this is not a, a male thing for a female thing. Like it's it's a no, yeah, it's a cross. It's a two. Again, back to your your point, which is that like a great and transformative love should should inspire poetry. It should inspire at least a new worldview, at least a new but but there in that is like the work of doing, and I think that not very often do people still feel the need to like to do that actual very physical, physical and intensive work. So this is kind of a rant, but I feel like um, the younger the generations go. So like in zoomer territory, Gen Z, um, they're so freaked out by formality and titles um, that that gets in their way romantically. Like I was reading a transcript where a, a, a therapist was doing group therapy with a bunch of Gen Z's and they were all like having sex and like doing all this stuff that all like high schoolers do, but they wouldn't like say that what they were doing was dating or defining it as romance. They'd be like, we were hanging out and we were hooking up and they were very like rigid about not putting titles or like anything really romantic because they didn't like the idea of what that like commitment represented or they felt like they couldn't really use those titles because they were too young or something, but also mostly just because the intensity of the commitment. And that's really sad because really the only commitment that is actually intense is like legal and marriage. And like, what is a boyfriend and a girlfriend? Like, I mean, those are things that we should be able to use liberally to be able to like make our partner feel like we care about them. And it's like a cute term of endearment, but like younger people are so freaked out by that now. It's ironic because I'm 30 and it's like, wow, do I feel, do I feel old? Like, is there, is there a generation behind us? I guess this is an element of, you know, a quarter life crisis is you're like, oh shit, like I'm no longer the, 
you know. The- oh, trust me. I'm on TikTok and people are like millennials. They're so old. And I'm like, oh, I'm a millennial. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well, TikTok, don't get me started. Uh, that's one of my rants. But no, I... I, I you hate I, my favorite Chinese surveillance app? Yeah, I was about to say, like, just choose your choose your Orwellian, uh, you know, Orwellian feature at this point. <laughs> it's all, it's all run by someone. So American corporation or Chinese government, choose your, choose your poison. So. Yeah. But it's a little sad. It's, it's sad that it all just seems, um, there's like an Edith Wharton quote from the age of innocence where she talks about how things all had to be like in signs and symbols because you couldn't be like outright with how you felt and romance. And I feel like that's very much coming back. And that's so sad because we're supposed to be such a liberated society and we can't really talk about our feelings, honestly. And that's depressing. We can't talk mm-hmm. about romance, honestly, in, in, at least in my opinion. I think it's interesting. And in, and in a way, while we have been freed from many of these sort of traditional trappings and labels of sort of bygone eras of, of dating and romance, like at least within those sort of bounds and strictures, there were sort of prescribed, maybe not prescribed is not the right word, but at least like generally agreed upon ways in which you could show, express, and inhabit affection. And now with a lot of those sort of guardrails, call them guardrails, call them limiting fences. Well, with those stripped away, fantastic. But now we're sort of left to to run oh, amok. Like, yeah, and impotent romantically exactly it's it's i think the uh result is that sort of cynicism rules and it's much easier to fall back on a cynical uh defensiveness than it is to sort of charge forward you know blithely blindly and to to make oneself vulnerable yeah i agree with you so was there anything else you wanted to talk about related to Gatsby? Because I kind of launched into the questions. But... No, no, no. No, let's go, let's go into the questions. I think, you know, well-canvassed, a well-canvassed book. So Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first question I asked, which you've given the most original answer, I will tell you that to this, um, is uh, what color is love and why? And I'm going to have to check the previous podcasts and preceding podcasts to see how uh, how much flattery and you're the only person also who didn't give me this like stock little thing about like well everybody's gonna say this but blah 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 like i think you knew your answer was original you knew it yeah, yeah. i mean on this one for sure i mean there's others which i think i probably i drove in the you know no the- actually you're quite um, an original character which i'm sure your leo ego will love <laughs> do you really want to start that because I I was waiting till we get to the question on things that are just of complete astronomical and astrological importance to me and my sign is one of those <laughs> things. Um, no, but um, the color of love. We'll go there later. Um, <laughs> the, color, the color of love. Um, I think indigo is the color of love. I think what's really fantastic about indigo, and I probably spent way too much time and way overwrote my answer. Indigo is both a color and a process uh, as well as, as also a tradition, like it is a, a an alchemical reaction by which um, indigo is a chemical reaction starts and the fabric is imbued with indigo. And a, as you let the chemical reaction take place, you add other chemicals that I'm not doing a great job of explaining the entire process, but like you can basically sort of retard or inhibit the chemical reaction to get sort of different shades, hues, 
uh, of indigo. And so there's no singular color of indigo, if that makes sense. There's no like, oh, like Pantone color indigo. There might be, but like the process of indigo dyeing is something that I believe was started by, or at least has the most sort of traditional roots in Japan. It's used most often in, in garment dyeing and, and uh, for things like denim. And indigo is fantastic because it, uh, it wears really well over time. It fades, it, uh, especially when you garmentize something like jeans, that's what gives the wonderful sort of fading around the seams and around the knees and around where you keep your phone or your keys or your wallet. And I think that you can then extrapolate all the ways in which this is similar to love, right? Love is, is, is not just a, a color that hangs on a wall. It's not just sort of a necessarily a feature of your day-to-day life. It is, you know, it is a process. It is a both a unique and individual thing, but also sort of a proud and a well-worn tradition. Um, so without belaboring the metaphor, I think that Indigo is, is a, at the very least a creative answer to your question. Yeah. Did you like know you were like giving me like the coolest response when you were typing this out? You're like, yeah, this will get her. This is this is a cool answer. Or do you do you actually buy this? No, no, I, I actually buy this. And I think that like it's one of those things, I think it's Hemingway said like, and again, fuck boy, one one, but like um <laughs> a writer should write what he knows. Like for better or worse, I've seen indigo dying and washing. Like it, it's color is something that I spent like a great deal of time thinking about, arguing about, selling, like it is so you so you actually saw this process when you were for sure working. yeah you can you can buy you can buy indigo and do it at home like in much later people do tie dye whatnot you can buy natural indigo and on your porch take you hear that kids quarantine activity yeah. indigo dyeing it would it's a go for it. it fair warning it dyes everything hands feet. So like, I'll just like look like a part of Blue Man Group for like the rest seriously, of the summer. It, it takes a long time to come out. So just... Just like love. Screws yeah, exactly. over for years at a time. Um, it's, yeah. Do you know the origin of the word denim? Uh, I do not. So this, obscure you, fact that I know. Um, it's from Nîmes, France. So it means denim. De Nimes from from Nimes, France. That's where um, the fabric originated. Random. I, I've spent some time in Nimes, France, so that's, that's how I know that that's where denim came from. If you're gonna go way down the denim rabbit hole, we can. Um, I will. I did not know that you had like such exhaustive knowledge of like textiles and shit. I kind of thought you were just, I don't know, like just a pretty face. No, I'm just. Um, <laughs> I, I I literally have a book called Fabric sciences which they like is like in that is so nerdy like, and cool for better or worse when you it's like any industry it's like finance like a big part of it is just you need to be able to know the vernacular and speak in the speak of the language of the people who you're talking to and if you're trying to that is very much finance they like in, intentionally use obscure terminology to try to like gatekeep basically as the example you just gave with denim like it all comes from somewhere right very often it was like, oh, well, this was a, a theory put forward by X, Y, or Z, and that's why it's called a X and X force or a so-and-so interest rate, right? Like, and unfortunately, usually the, you know, math and, and finance whizzes who come up with this stuff are not like, you know, linguistically, creatively minded and like, oh, we're going to actually call this a like, you know. Something cute. We're going to just call it EBITDA. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which Did I ever tell you I wanted to... um 
with my ex, I wanted to get him a dog and name it Ibada. So like every time like he would say the word, it would just go crazy. And like, that was like my evil plot. (laughs) That's one of those things where it's like, you see like the license plate that's like, you know, on the Ferrari, that's like too big to fail. And it's like, yeah, that's, that might be, yeah. It's like, yeah. Did you make off with a bunch of people's retirement? Or like, yeah, he's going first to the guillotine. (laughs) You, you, you laugh about it, but. You know, no, you, I, I'm not laughing. It's a real I, thing. So, um, so yes, I love your indigo answer. It is the most original. So a plus plus, what is something that is romantic to you that isn't typically romantic to other people? This is another thing where I feel like I phoned it in a bit where, where I was like, okay. And like, but I have in, in now two or three different relationships, I've had the experience of, um, going shopping with somebody um, very often, like when you're traveling and they're like in a foreign place and you, so uh, I'm, I'm moving sideways into traveling, traveling with someone, uh, someone said like never, I think it was actually Fitzgerald said, uh, never travel with someone unless you love them. Maybe it was him. Anyway, not the point. Sage um, advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause you'll find out real quick if you do or you don't, but what's so interesting about shopping is that like, and why people hate doing it with significant others is because it is an environment in which you have to simultaneously be vulnerable, but also be honest, right? If, if your partner like tries on a pair of jeans, for example, like, do these look good? Like a lot of people like, Oh, that's a real catch 22. Because if I say like, no, they look terrible. And I'm being honest, then like, you know, I get lambasted and I get raked over the coals. But if I, if I lie and I say, Oh no, they look great. And then she's like, no, they look, they make me look terrible. Like he may says, Oh no, like they make, make me look horrible. Like, so, but I think that that's, in many ways is, is that the, the crux and is like kind of a, you've already used the analogy, but like, is like a crucible for a relationship. You need to be able to communicate honestly and compassionately to speak hard truths and kind untruths. Nobody else said, has said shopping so far. And I thought it was a unique pick and it's kind of a tie in once again to your like fashion background. But I think it's cool because you are getting insight into this person's idea of what is aspirational to them or just sort of like what how they view themselves how they view kind of an ideal reality through the items they pick either you know for their home or what they're wearing and I think if you guys have a, a similar vision it can be a really like wonderful experience it's kind of 500 days of summer esque I mean they go into Ikea which is very much like you know what will our life look like and I think that that can be very intimate and romantic it can also be very telling if like we've, we've touched on this in previous conversations, but like, am I taking you into the Victoria's Secrets store and saying, Oh, I want you to look like this. Right. Or, or are we going into a store and, and you're saying like, Oh, this is, this is something that I see. I'd, I'd like to try. I would contest that in like a good supportive relationship. Like you, again, should not lie. You should not necessarily like obfuscate your own opinion or viewpoint, but you need to be both open and accepting to, again, the vulnerability and, and personal expression that that person is offering up to you. Mm-hmm. And I, that in relationships, we get so few opportunities, um, not so few, but like this is, this is a very real tangible opportunity where someone is aligning what we both want for our home and shared vision of ourselves together. But I always think about it as like, you know, people should go shopping with their partners for like, for clothes and home goods and, and for not just the space that they would decorate together, but also the, the way in which that like you choose to express yourself 
um, whether it's- Yeah, no, I I love it. I think it's like an anthropological event. Like I want to know, I want to get insight. I think it's the most um, interesting, eye-opening experience to go grocery shopping with the person you're seeing, like what are, especially if it's kind of like a sort of a specialty, like a Dean and DeLuca or Italy or something type thing, like what are they going to pick out? Like that's fascinating to me. It might just deviate totally from what I think that person would pick or from what I would pick. And I think it, it's just cool to see what people do. hundred <laughs> percent. It's, and it's again, if done in a sort of compassionate and loving way, it can be a very revealing thing. You know. Just sort of curious, you know, I, I think like not coming from like a, you know, this is what, what is right and correct sense, but like just sort of like I'm interested to see like what, what would they do? Like not, not saying that this is the template for what, what is good. How do you know you're in love? And if you've been in love multiple times, did it feel differently every time or was it similar? In my experience, I've been in love a handful of times and it's, it's never the same. Uh, but it's always, there are commonalities and there are sort of in much the way we all sort of make sense of our own existences. Like there are patterns, there are things that I've recognized throughout them. And something that I found is that like, I think there is a feeling of both invincibility and incredible. I think I, I went so far as to call it fear in the written answers, but like, I think it's, it is a fear born of vulnerability, right? So if you are if you are loved by someone and you sort of feel and believe in that love, like there is this sense that like regardless of what happens, regardless of whatever shit you're going through, whatever mean thing this said, fair you had, there is still this sort of like I think I called it armor in the analogy that I used in the written answers, but like there is this sort of backstop. There is this like, but I am loved by so and so. And I think that that is like one of the most yeah, it's a feeling of invincibility. It is like a talisman that that sort of weathers all storms, rights all wrongs. You know, you choose your your wedding vow, right? Um, <laughs> but but then coupled with that, in my feeling of being in love is is there's also fear, and it's a fear born of vulnerability. And perhaps this is because I've never been like in like sort of like marriage committed lifetime companionate love again back to your earlier point like if if you're doing it right you are opening yourself up to another person in a way that gives them a a great deal of control over your own happiness over your happiness and that's something that most people don't do readily or easily at least in my experience and so for me the experience of being in love is is the sort of like onslaught of 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 joy and positivity and courage and this talisman of 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 like confidence and you know steadfastness also coupled with the sort of like the fear you call it the the swooping falling sensation of 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 love right falling in love the oh shit feeling yeah yeah yeah, my my answer kind of mirrored yours in the the armor sense. Like it was interesting. Um, the last time I was in love was probably the most like mature version. I'd only been in love twice, um, and it was interesting because it felt like at the end of a hard day, I had something that was like though I wasn't necessarily even expressing this to this person or venting or whatever. I felt like I had like a refuge or like an oasis to like return to, um, like kind of just sort of like an inner sanctuary. 
which was interesting. So it kind of mirrored what you were saying. But then there's also this fear that like I'm putting so uh, like there's a lot riding on this. Like if this person rejects me or this person hurts me, then like this all, you know, goes down the tubes. I hope and believe that there will come a day and a time where the former feeling is just exponentially greater, if not completely supersedes the, the, the latter sort of fear and emotion, right? Sort of sign off the dotted line and like, you know, that's it. Just flowers and roses forever, right? Yeah. Or like, you know, I guess I believe in that too, but I also feel like then there becomes the sort of like love as an action. Like, um, you know, it's not just like a feeling that you have, but it's like a decision. Like I've committed to you, like even when it's not so fun or glamorous or like, you know, I'm really not feeling it anymore. Like I'm choosing to love you anyway. And obviously I'm not married, but I imagine that that's kind of what it is supposed to be like. And that's beautiful in its own way. And I think that the other person feels that, like that commitment and loyalty and, and love, even when it's less glamorous and returns it. And that's, that's a different type of beautiful love. Exactly. Well, and I, I, one of the better sort of, call it a sermon, sort of talks that was given by minister at a wedding. I was at talked about that. And he talked about how, you know, there's people in this room who've been married 15 years, 20 plus years. And basically what you were committing to today is to always make that choice in favor of the person who's standing across from you now. Like you are, it's when it's unglamorous, when it's like, it is that choice to again, recommit and again, recommit to, to the relationship, to the person, to the, process of of loving someone which is truly the 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 labor of a lifetime very rarely does it all just like always click always fire in all cylinders always flowers roses and butterflies yeah i'm the the child of parents who've been divorced and remarried three times so like i know that um but i i believe that it can work and um yeah, I think there's something very noble about that. What is the craziest thing you've done for love? I'll, I'll go with the ha-ha story. So I, I've done a lot of crazy things for love. I asked out my first eighth grade girlfriend uh, by getting down on one knee outside of the cafeteria. Like, and was literally like, will you be my girlfriend? And she was like, get up right now, get up. And uh, we dated for two months and then broke up. And then eventually we actually ended up getting together. This was my sort of like high school sweetheart, the woman whom I was dating or beginning to date when I was reading The Great Gatsby. So how's that for some symmetry? Uh, but oh, Man, uh, you got down on one knee? I don't even know what I would do if like, like my brain isn't formed yet. I'm still a fetus and you're getting down on one knee. Oh, I know. Trust me. I know. Eighth grade. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's pretty crazy. Um uh, there was another time I had a, a, a massive crush on this girl. I think it was my freshman year of high school. And she had a sort of a, a beach house near where we grew up. And we'd spent the day like out on, on the boat, just like tubing and driving around. And you'd anchor the boat offshore and the tide had come up. And she was sort of like on the southern end of the island. So it was kind of a, in the mouth of a tidal river. And we were all just like hanging out at her house. You know, it, the sun had said it was dark and the tide had come up. So the boat was sitting at anchor 30, 40 yards off the beach at night in a tidal river. And this girl who was hosting us, who I had a massive crush on, was like, 
oh my God, I left my phone on the boat. I'm, I, I don't have my phone. I want to get my phone. I was like, I'll go get it. Took off the shirt, took off the shoes and just started like swimming out into the dark tidal river. And it was never second, seen again. <laughs> oh, I know. And that's like immediately what crosses your mind as like the first wave goes over your head. You're like, oh, oh well, shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I got out there, I got out to the boat and I managed to sort of like pull the ladder down and pull myself up into the boat. And then I'm like, how the fuck am I going to get this phone back to shore? Yeah. I, I'm so dumb. I literally like that only just occurred to me now. I was like, but he's going to, he needs to swim back. So I did. I like got in the, I like, like- lowered myself into the water and like with one hand sort of pulled myself and the phone was fine. I was fine. But like, there was a definite moment where I was like, this is either going to be like a great story we laugh about, or it's going to be like, they're finding my body in the Atlantic. Anyway. Did you at least get laid? No, no, no. It, it, it <laughs> took me years to uh, confess, to the the, confess to the crush. Yeah. And not, nothing ever came of it. She's very happily married now. Uh, we're still friends. She's, she's That's the great. South for you. Are there other, you said there's many, many crazy things. Are there any other I can pull out of you? I think I'd gone on like a second date with this girl and we'd known each other for a little while. And so there was, there was, there was more of a relationship in history too, but we'd only gone on like a second date. And I think we had like just like the second date was when we kissed for the first time. And it was like, you know, and she was leaving to go on a business trip. And then I was leaving on a business trip, like right when she got back. So we weren't gonna see each other for like a week and a half. And she was like, ah, I'm just like, so bummed out. I'm not going to see you. Like, I wish I could see you like before I leave. And I'm like, okay. And it was like 1030 on like a Wednesday. And I got in a cab and like took a, you know, $60 cab from like the upper West side all the way up to Brooklyn to like say goodnight to her. And she was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And like, in hindsight, way overplaying the hand, like way, like, at the time, it seemed, like, super romantic, like, oh, this will be just a casual, like, oh, showed up with, like, you know, like, a white rose in my hand or something, and then, and then I got that, I was like, this is a little creepy, this is, this might be a little weird, but it, it went off all right, and the relationship went on to, to great heights from there, but that was definitely a bit of a, a crazy hijinks. It's always thing. a bit of a fine line, like, am I going into, like, weird incel territory, or is this actually really hot? <laughs> but this goes, this, this goes back to the, like, are you the kind of person who will be too scared to look like a fool? who would be too scared to like do the thing, profess the feeling, build the monuments only to have the girl be like, you know, I'm not really into pyramids. I like towers. And you're like, well, <laughs> shit, you know? And like, and, and that's All right, I think, guys, knock it down. Starting over. But that's the, and I think that is the great, but also like terrible. And also like, it takes real courage because at the end of the day, a lot of things that are romantic are ridiculous and can be seen in the bright shining light of day or through the, the lens, the less rosy lens of another is completely ridiculous. It's completely nonsensical. Are you still like willing to, to put yourself out there and take that shot and do that thing? Like, you know, mm, you're a Leo. So the, the answer is yes, of course. <laughs> Are you, you're goading me into this. You're- do you believe in love at first sight? What do you mean by love at first sight? Is it like you just see someone and you are instantly in love? I think like, obviously there's a cerebral component to love. So like that you have to like be able to talk to somebody, but I do feel like there's something to feeling like there's the potential for love here just on site. Yeah. So that's, but again, that's, that's a much finer point than I believe how people would say. Yeah. I mean, this is that, but that's my, my definition. 
yeah, so that's the thing. It's like, I don't believe in love at first sight in that, like, the multidimensional emotional experience of love right. can, can be achieved with a look. I don't, I don't believe that. Like, the, like, love, especially as I've described it previously in this interview, but also as I've experienced it, is so much more than just uh, a visual impression. It is, it is a conversation. It is a, it's a give and a take. It's an exchange. It's a electric so, echo. Yeah. I hate to get woo on you again, but I will. I feel like there's some people that I've mm-hmm. met where there's this, I mean, it wasn't just like a, like, oh, I have the hots for them. Like they're attractive. There was just something more going on energetically that that was kind of the only way I could potentially like describe it is that it was some sort of like love at first sight type reaction that I was having. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced, have you ever experienced something like that where you knew it was beyond just like, I find this person attractive. Like there's something energetically that draws me to them. No, I don't know that I have. I definitely, I like, I would flatter myself to say that I think I'm a pretty good like judge of people, but I, I don't think that I'm like, a good like snap judge of people. I don't think that I'm like at just a look. And again, this is where I'm getting hyper technical on your definition, but it's like to, to directly answer your question. No, I've never like felt an energy current and been like, ah, this is a person with whom you would know if I, what I was talking about. If, if I described it that way, I feel like you would have told me yes. If you had felt it. Exactly. For sure. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I think I probably would just lump that into the whole like attraction. Well, maybe I'm just like shallow. Maybe I'm energetically shallow. Like you need more convincing and I'm just like, <laughs> well, you could, uh, by the same argument, you could say that you're just better attuned. You are a more, you have a more sensitive energy. <laughs> slash, slash I'm trying to roll your eyes too too much when you say that. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I just, I, I water crystal over here is a little. I see the move it. It's out of alignment. So this, this yeah, no, I'll give you your time to sort of connect really, with your twin I'm, flame or whatever yeah, the fuck. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I'm just, uh, just my chakras here next to my. Or, yeah. Do you sorry, to, wait, should we should we burn some sage before we move on to the next? Uh, oh, I did get some incense, but it's not it's sandalwood. So sandalwood smells good. I actually really do like um, Palo Santo. Mm-hmm. It's, to, it's actually not supposed to clear all the energy. It's supposed to just clear all the negative energy, so the good energy remains. So all the the happy ghosts they stay behind, but <laughs> the bad ghosts and the angry ghosts they leave. <laughs> See, how do you know if it was love at first sight or if a guy just, you know, had, you know, you know, had recently spritzed some sandalwood, you know, or, you know, burned some sandalwood, you know, you could have just. Listen, I am very much prone to falling for scents. Like if you have the right Margiela fragrance, Lolabo, you know, I might just be into that. I I hate myself actually. No, I, but no, I, I would, I would call you, I would call you out here, which is that like. Scent actually is processed in the hippocampus very close to where long-term memories are formed. So scent is actually a very like proven factor in both like memory and uh, uh, like cognitive function. Like it's, 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 I'm sure you've had the experience of like walking to a place and it smells like, Oh, that hotel I stayed in that one time or the kindergarten playground where I'm. Oh yeah. No, I know when I'm in an addition hotel for sure. I smell that signature scent and I'm like, Oh, I've arrived. (laughs) And, and like, and that's the thing is it's like scent is very much, I mean, not even just like the pheromones thing. Like it is, it is very, again, personal and intimately connected to um, 
your personal experience. And so, yeah, I, I, I am entirely in favor of that. It, it could be an entire deal breaker if you like smell someone or smell someone for the first time. It's like, whoa, like I'm getting like evil third grade teacher vibes. <laughs> yeah. Or like old gross aunt vibes or like, yeah. Midwestern bank teller vibes. <laughs> okay. Listen, okay. Listen, you know, some people might've just got some Oriental rugs out of storage. Like let's not. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. So there's some like pseudoscience stuff with this, like, you know, there's like a vestigial organ that like you could smell pheromones and like, you know, kind of like you're an animal again. But sure. I think it's the stupidest thing that women and men do to not have a signature scent because you are kind of tapping into that really sensitive place in your brain, in another person's brain, where that they're connecting like memories with you. Like I remember um a very like vivid childhood memories of Brazil and like I smelled somebody's cologne one time and it had to have been somebody that I met when I was in Brazil. And I think it was actually in Italy. And I was like, oh my God, like all of these memories just immediately surge into my mind. And I'm like, this is so something that people can hack. Like you can hack this. If you have a really good, strong signature scent, like you can embed yourself in your, in someone's mind. It is a double-edged sword though. In the same way that like, Oh, this so is like our song. Could be like cloying or something. No, as in like, in in the best possible way, it can be a tether that sort of binds you to another person or to your love or whatever. In the same sense, that same stricture can be that thing that you cannot sort of pry out of the fabric of your sheets or that cologne bottle that you can never spray again. Right? Like it's it's a wonderful and terrible thing. Oh yeah. No, I've cried. I've cried at a a cologne whiff before I've been in like Sephora and I've been like smelling some Margiela scent, like sobbing. I totally have done that. Humiliating. So, and again, I think it's multidimensional and and multifaceted. And so best kind of relationship sort of fires on all cylinders and more in, in, in the ways in which you connect with someone. Um, This, you know, also then makes, separation and a breakup very difficult because you don't even realize all these little subcutaneous and subconscious ways in which you are connected to another person until they are individually and very poignantly severed yeah like all of a sudden you're like romanticizing the way somebody like swipes their metro card or something and you're like what the fuck like (laughs) for sure 100 percent. yeah yeah brutal it's the I don't know. I think there's something kind of like, maybe it's a Catholic in me that's like, there's beauty and pain, but I think there's something beautiful about that kind of agony. Mm, well, you know, whatever you're into, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> you like my Catholic pain fixation. Um, I, was, I was going in another direction with it, but we'll save it for off the pod. Yeah. Good, good call. What is the most romantic body part that isn't a sex organ? Again, not super original, but eyes. And you can tell a lot by how people use or don't use their eyes. And in the age of COVID, it's sort of all we got. So <laughs> I, um, I met somebody who told me that they could tell if somebody had a high IQ or was smart by their eyes. Mm. And I've heard once, which you'll like, cause it's a classics reference, um, that people said you could tell Caligula was crazy because you could see the whites of his eyes more than like, um, I guess the iris. Yeah. So 
I always kind of think about that when I, when I meet somebody who you could see like the whites of their eyes a lot, like, are they nuts? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you could also have underlying thyroid problems. Um, but yeah. <laughs> there's a, someone said eyes are the gateway to the soul, right? A lot of people sort of learn to, to use them and, and to control them. But like anything, if it's an act, if it's a, if it's a charade, eventually the best actor actors need need breaks or will be in situations where the lines are not fed to them. And it's in those moments where you can really see what people are looking for or to or away from. Yeah. If, if you're thinking about it, like I've never, I've never really thought about it until now. Um, I acted in, in high school and a little bit in college, but if you think about like acting performances, like what convinces you most really, I feel like is eyes and like pitch and like vocal qualities. Right. So like, Sure. More, I feel like, than body language, even though the, like, the bulk of who you are in your performance, if you're just kind of looking square footage-wise, is like your body. Really, your eyes and, and the sound is what compels you, I think, to like, believe somebody's performance or not. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that they put very heavy eyeliner and mascara on both men and women in the theater, because you need to, to see people's eyes. They need to be sort of brought forward and expressive. You were a theater nerd, right? Yeah, you played Scrooge. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm a theater, that I'm a theater nerd. I did like a handful of productions. Um, yeah. We won't go into it if you don't want to. We really don't need to. It's, it's, <laughs> it's okay. really not, yeah, really not worth. What's the most romantic season? Spring is lust, summer is passion. For me, fall. The fall is love. Just such an introspective season. Um, it's interesting. So it's like, I guess it's like beyond, like you said, lust or infatuation or sort of a crush and more kind of becoming something deeper. Yeah. I mean, I would say that like, to again, be a bit grandiose with the answer, like uh, the fall is when you start gathering and storing and provisioning for the winter. It is not the season of sort of plenty and bounty of the sort of, you know, spring and summer. It's not the season of kind of like growth and newness and freshness of the sort of like early spring. It's not the time of kind of frigid necessity of, of, you know, barren desolation and of, of clasping to what's, you know, to what's around you. It is the, the time in which you sort of take stock, take store and uh, sort of gird yourself for the, for the coming difficulty. Um, you have to choose wisely. Yeah. Going very like, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Autumn is my favorite season, but I don't think I ever really thought of it within the, I, I think I just sort of find it romantic for aesthetic reasons, but. Yeah. Like, I, I also do as well. I think fall clothing is great. I like layers, leaves changing, freshness in the air. Um, without context, if you had a time capsule and you included objects from the greatest love affairs you've had in your life, what would the objects be? Are these things that I actually tangibly have to have or just things that I think would be good to have and to... Yeah, they don't have to actually be things that you have. An unsent love letter, a audio recording of first time I and my partner told each other we loved one another. I'm like a pretty regular journaler, so probably... Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, yeah I try to journal like every night. Good for um, your brain. 
Yeah, it's at the very least a way to kind of Harry Potter pensive style, like take stuff out, kind of drop it down into a place. Yeah, for sure. And Not so much. The Chinese say the faintest ink is better than the best memory. Well, the Chinese never had to try to read my handwriting, so there's that. Um, Do you have bad scrawl? Do you, can you horrible, show me? Horrible. Do you have anything? Show me. Ooh, is this a moleskin? Yeah, this is the. This is me sketching woodworking projects. And uh, okay, this isn't so bad. His handwriting isn't so bad. Mine okay. is bad for a girl. My handwriting is atrocious. I have like Unabomber handwriting. But again, the, the journal's not something that I'm writing for anyone else. So look it, at this. This is my handwriting. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. But girls oh. all have like that really like kind of like cylinder like bubble handwriting. Like they all went to some yeah. and they learned how to write. And I, you know, was not there. I had the flu when they all went to this like bubble handwriting camp. So some of the best penmanship I actually know is like, I've got a friend who he only writes in cursive and it's like, like right out of the prime. It's amazing. It's like super cool. I wish, Are you friends I, with Oscar Wilde? Like, I don't know I, anybody who writes in cursive. I, I wish that I had good penmanship. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a lost art form. That's the thing we is. should bring back along with things uh, that we should bring back. Romantic. That was actually one of the quarantine things I thought about doing was calligraphy. Calligraphy? Oh my God. I could so see you with like a quill. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah the only, the only problem is that i need to just get my handwriting semi-decent first before i worked on the like very finite calligraphy pen is there like a handwriting camp i feel like that's something that's something some like there's definitely person like person should create along with like apple husbandry which you originally you mentioned earlier <laughs> like that's something i feel like somebody needs to do like a coloring book for adults like a handwriting boot camp Oh, I I have no doubt there's like a, I I bet if you Googled it, it, there's probably a version that's like- Some man who lives in Park Slope probably created. Exactly. Self-published. There's like 40 of them on Amazon. It's all like a very tasteful, like like the cover is like a sage. (laughs) Yeah, like Reese Reese Witherspoon is going to post on her Instagram once. Yeah, yeah. Draper Jane. brother is going to have like, yeah. Mailing list. Yeah, for sure. On Oprah's 10 things you need to do this holiday season. So. Yes. Um, but we're going to be all about it because we need to like write love letters again, right? Exactly. My last question. Well, I kind of want to actually ask about that. What were we just talking about? Um, oh, Sorry, like any habits that you feel that yeah. you kept from previous like love affairs or decided against? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that would be a good question to add to the list. Yeah, I'm going to add it. Like more recently, I was in a relationship and the person in this relationship had this incredible, has this incredible ability to, if you've seen the movie Inside Out, she like, she is joy. Like she, she not only like joy sort of runs her control panel, but like, like just the way in which she views things, the way in which, and I love Inside Out, by the way, that is like one of the top five movies I'm going to show you know, if I have kids someday, like, I think it was such a fantastic way to think about absolutely emotion, yeah. cognitive processes. It's, it's, it's great. And like, and I think it's a great tool to relate particularly to young children to be like, wait, who's driving right now? Like, who's, you know, like, and I, I, I think one of the real deep and important lessons of that movie is that like, who, who is, who and how are our core memories being formed and the degree to which you are allowing 
and approaching the world through a joyful lens and experiencing things as, as giver, as, as giving, giving of joy. And this woman was just, and is just like one of the most just like innately joyful and like happy people that I know. And it's not, it's not delusion. It's, and I think a lot of people maybe roll their eyes like, Oh, you know, it's just always looking on the bright side. It's always, it's this like, you know, cheerleader type effect. Like, no, it's, it's a very like active intentional process of mentally working out right in the same way that you, you know, if you practice yoga or if you train to do triathlons or if you ride bikes or swims, like you need to practice this technique. And it's very much a technique. Like you can, you can get good in it and it can greatly impact the, not just the lens, but your sort of experience of, of the world and, and things in the world. And that was something that I am striving to keep and to maintain in my Oh, I love that. I love that. I also love like, um, actually that's like a name that I feel like is probably going to get like laughed down when I have kids is that I would love to name a child as joy because I think it's one of like my favorite, like aspirational goals is that like, I would love to feel, and I feel like children are supposed to sort of bring that. So maybe it would be kind of like naming a child, what they, what they brought into the world is joy. Um, but like, yeah, it absolutely is something I feel like we kind of mock a little bit like oh it's not really serious or like that's not what life is about or whatever like you can't just like live in a state of bliss but there's something really beautiful about having joy in the forefront of your mind and sort of approaching life with like kind of like a joy first mentality so I can imagine that was very intoxicating yeah yeah and I mean and I'd go so far as to say like not just I would I would classify it as like formative and transformative do you feel it's more romantic for something to end in like a, you know, marriage or like happily ever after, or is it more romantic for something to like be um, punctuated or end kind of tragically or, you know, end for reasons beyond what the people involved would like intend for the situation? More romantic? Yeah. Well, it's more romantic for something to end or kind of exist on. I feel like the way you've asked the question is a bit of a false dichotomy because like something can end, but continue to exist in either. Oh, like mentally and emotionally. Sure. But like in, in the material world, I suppose. (laughs) Yes. yes. Um, I still subscribe to the view of of lifelong love and like marriage, not necessarily marriage with all the religious trappings and whatever, but like a a marriage as a sort of covenant. Mm, A covenant. Yes, I, I, I use the religious word and all of its and all of its meaning, but stripped from like the religious. Yeah, it, because it is it is it is truly a covenant, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, like it's um, is a commitment before God, friends, family, wherever that like that sort of agreement is like, and that and the maintenance. And again, the very real work of upkeeping and continuing that is by far the more romantic. I like that answer. Nobody's answered that way so far. Everybody is sort of on the side of like things being abbreviated or ending. There's sort of this like fantasy that's ascribed to them because of that. And like, I guess that's your definition of romance. If you feel like it's like better to idealize or if it's better to actually have done it and be a feat. I, mean, I think that people will admit that there's something that's like noble and, and feat-like about 
romance has action, like we discussed. So Yes, but I mean, every great romance ends in tragedy. Like, we're all going to fucking die someday. So, like, it's like, you know. But all romance, okay, so, like, at the end, and I've mentioned this in one of my episodes, I think it was the Four Weddings episode, is that, like, the ultimate, like, end game of, like, being married to somebody is somebody's going to die. Like, either it's you or your partner who's going to die if, like, you are going to be together forever, right? So that is tragic. So no matter what way you slice it, it's going to be tragic. Yeah, but the way that I see it, and again, circling back to one of our original points, which is that like, ideally, after a long and happy and healthful life, either one of the partner dies and like, what you have to show for it is in fact, the greatest of constructions is the greatest of things built. And that is a, in the case of a people who decide to procreate is a literal living monument in the form of a family is an appropriation and, or in the case of just like a great sort of long lasting cohabitation it is a it is a life like well built and well lived together right and in, and is not that far superior in its in its actuality and its realness than like the much richer for sure I and i think the narrative end that's much easier to tell is the and then they live happily ever after or then like or then they both died and it was sad right like the, <laughs> or for better or worse stories can't narratives as they are constructed do not go in perpetuity but our lives for our own experience do go in perpetuity yeah and so that to me is the greater test of a romance which is that like romantic and again this goes back to your original point which is like you have to define romanticism which is that like a great romantic story could be two lovers dying for one another over their family's disagreements okay that's romantic in the sense that like ultimate sacrifice but like, but is that any more romantic? But even as than... it's sacrifice, like, do you say your life is sacrifice? Like if, but really you're choosing to not suffer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah there's like many different ways to slice it. Here's a question. Um, mm-hmm. If you're ballsy enough to answer, do you feel like having children with somebody is like the ultimate consummation of love? I think that becoming a parent is the ultimate consummation of love. And it's not necessarily you're consummating like the love between you and the person with whom you procreated. The love that sort of comes into being is this new and, and wholly unique. The aspect of, of familiar, of, of like parent to child is this sort of like, it is at once a entire holistic dependence, literal, like infant would not survive without caretaking parent, mother, but like parent influence there that then grows into a, you need to help this thing, entity, being, person become itself, realize itself, grow into, and like, and so then this, yeah, I believe that it's it's an ultimate consummation of love, but it's not like the consummation of like your love with your spouse or your love with, do you know what I mean? It's a consummation of a different kind of love. Like it, it is it a- transcends it. What's up? It transcends, it transcends even romantic love. In a sense. Yes. Yes, because it 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 forces you to think almost non transactionally or like in a non selfish sense. Interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Like it like it it's it is entirely not about you. There's a very beautiful poem I feel like you'd like. Um, do you like Khalil Gibran, the poet? Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of him? No, no. There's this book of poetry called The Prophet, and there's this really beautiful poem about what children are supposed to be, and they're supposed to be he makes all these allusions to them being like 
um, arrows in your quiver. Like they're not you, but they come from you and they're like a separate entity. So they're not like your being, they're not your slave, but there's something that comes forth from you and you can like, you know, strive to, to be like them and have them be like you, but really they're their own creature and like kind of giving them love and just sending them out into the universe is the best thing you could do for them. Um, it's a really beautiful poem. I like it a lot. Yeah, send me, send me the poem. I'm interested. So that's, that's the pod. Um, do you have any other like romantic advice or insights or anything you want to kind of bestow upon our, our audience? Um, trust and communication. I mean, again, who the, who the hell am I to give advice? I mean, I should start by saying that because like, I mean. Why not you? I haven't figured it out. But yeah, I have. I, I, <laughs> uh, not I. I in my own experience, for what it's worth, trust and communication are the foundational elements. And if those two things are, are not there and are not maintained, nothing else works. Like most elements of romance, like those things can have sort of a sexiness and a lure to them. Like maybe it's the fun banter you guys have and the jokes and the inside this and it's the, but then at the, at a much sort of like deeper and more abiding and more sustaining level, like communication takes work. It takes the unpacking of the, you know, misunderstood you know, argument or, or, or thing that you said, it's, uh, and the same thing with trust, right? Trust is. Mm, yeah. Blindly with faith, yada, yada. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, but, but in, in actuality, it's. The unsexiness of it is. Yeah. And I did learn that there's kind of this expanded definition of what trust is. Cause I kind of always thought like trust meant like somebody doesn't hurt you, but then somebody said trust is that that person is thinking of your best interest when they make decisions. Um, which I thought was interesting. Like they think of you when they make choices that af- would affect you. And I was like, wow, my definition was so puny compared to that. Like I was just sort of thinking that they're not going to hurt me, but really like they're thinking of me and how my life might benefit from their choices. And that's much more ex- expanded and better than what my definition was. So kind of, I, cause I used to sort of think like, oh, like I don't have a problem trusting people, but my definition was so narrow and small. So when you think of it being bigger, it's a different thing. It's less sexy. Like, it's not just like, oh, like I just kind of give you carte blanche to do whatever. It's like, no, you're really believing that this person thinks of you when they make choices. Yeah. No, I, I really like that. And it's, I would say that that's very true. Thank you very much for coming on the pod and being so honest with me. You're actually the first person I thought of besides my best friend that I really wanted to interview because I knew that your answers would be so satisfying and cool. Um, so thank you. Thanks, Evan. Um, you can follow me on my Instagram. I'll plug it. It's at little love fool. It has no followers basically, but it's a hyper romantic mood board and it, um, has announcements for episodes and stuff. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs>